Greenwich by Susan Cooper. This is going to be just part one of chapter three. Because Henry's tired tonight, and so am I. Under the sunset sky, the sea was glass smooth. Long, slow rollers from the Atlantic, rippling like muscles beneath the skin, made the only sign of the great invisible strength of the ocean in all the tranquil evening. Quietly the fishing boats moved out, a broad fishtail wake spreading behind each one, their engines chugged softly through the still air. Jane stood at the end of Kemar Head, on the crest of a granite outfall that tumbled its rocks two hundred feet to the sea, and she watched them go. Toy boats, they seemed from there, the scatter of a fishing fleet that every week, every month, every year for endless years had been going out after the pilchard or the mackerel before dusk, and staying at the chase until dawn. Every year there were fewer of them, but still every year they went. The sun dropped at the horizon, a fat glowing ball spreading yellow light over all the smooth sea, and the last boat crept out of Trewissick Harbour, its engine thumping like a muffled heartbeat in Jane's ears. As the last spreading lines of the boat's wake washed against the harbour wall, in a final swift rush the great sun dropped below the horizon, and the light of the April evening began very slowly to die. A small wind sprang up. Jane shivered and pulled her jacket around her. There was suddenly a coldness in the darkening air. As if in answer to the beginning breeze, a light starred up suddenly across Trewissick Bay, on the headland opposite Kemar Head. At the same time there was a sudden warmth behind Jane's back. She swung round and saw dark figures against tall flames, where a light had been set to the towering pile of driftwood and branches that had lain waiting to become a bonfire for this one night. Mrs. Penhallow had told her that the two beacons would burn until the fishing-boats came back, flames leaping all through the night until dawn. Mrs. Penhallow, now there was a mystery. Jane thought again of the moment that afternoon when she had been alone in the living-room, flipping through a magazine, waiting for Simon. She had heard a nervous clearing of the throat, and there in the kitchen doorway Mrs. Penhallow was standing, round and rosy, and unusually fidgety. "'If you fancy comin' to the makin' to-night, my dear, you'm welcome,' she said abruptly. Jane blinked at her. "'The making?' "'The makin' of the Greenwich.' The lilt of Mrs. Penhallow's Cornish accent seemed more marked than usual. "'It do take all the night, tez a long business, and no outsiders allowed near, generally. But if you feel you'd like, you, being the only female close to the professor and all—' She waved a hand, as if to catch words. "'The women did agree it's all right, and I'd be happy to take ye.' "'Thank you very much,' said Jane, puzzled but pleased. "'Er, can Mrs. Stanton come too?' "'No,' Mrs. Penhallow said sharply. She added more gently, as Jane's eyebrows went up, "'She'm a furriner, you see. Tisn't fitting.' Up on the headland, gazing at the fire, Jane remembered the flat finality of the words— she had accepted the pronouncement, and, without even trying to explain the situation to Fran Stanton, had come out after supper to the headland with Mrs. Penhallow. I think that woman is a servant of the dark, because she wouldn't be on any gang of the name of Stanton, because of Will. Don't you think? Mrs. Penhallow, you think, is a servant of the dark? It's possible. Possible. Yet still she had been given no idea of what was to happen. Nobody had told her what the thing called the Greenwich would be like, or how it would be made, or what would happen to it. 
she knew only that the business would occupy the whole night and end when the fisherman came home. Jane shivered again. Night was falling, and she was not over-fond of the nights of Cornwall. They held too much of the unknown. Black shadows ran over the rocks around her, dancing and disappearing as the flames leapt. Instinctively seeking company, Jane moved forward into the circle of bright light around the bonfire. Yet this too was unnerving, for now the other figures moved to and fro at the edge of the darkness, out of sight, and she felt suddenly vulnerable. She hesitated, frightened by the tensions in the air. "'Come, dear,' said Mrs. Penhallow's soft voice beside her. "'Come by here.' There was a hint of urgency in her tone. Hastily she took Jane by the arm and led her aside. "'Time for the makin,' she said. "'You want to keep out of the way if you can.' Then she was gone again, leaving Jane alone near a group of women, busying themselves with something not yet visible. Jane found a rock and sat down, warmed by the fire. She watched. Scores of women were there, of all ages, the younger ones in jeans and sweaters, the rest in sturdy dark skirts, long as overcoats, and high heavy boots. Jane could see a big pile of stones, each the size of a man's head, and a far higher pile of green branches. Hawthorn, she thought, too leafy to be intended for the fire, but she did not understand the purpose of either of these. Then one tall woman moved out before the rest and held one arm high in the air. She called out something Jane could not understand, and at once the women set to working, in a curiously ordered way, in small groups. Some would take up a branch, strip it of leaves and twigs, and test it for flexibility. Others then would take the branch, and in some swift-practiced way, weave it together with others into what began very slowly to emerge as a kind of frame. After a while the frame began to show signs of becoming a great cylinder— the cleaning and bending and tying went on for a long time. Jane shifted restlessly. The leaves on some of the branches seemed to be of a different shape from the hawthorn. She was not close enough to see what they might be, and she did not, did not intend to move. She felt she would only be safe here, half invisible on her rock, unnoticed, watching from a little way off. At her side suddenly she found the tall woman who had seemed the other's leader. Bright eyes looked down at her out of a thin face, framed by a scarf tied under the chin. "'Jane Drew it is,' the woman said, with a Cornish accent that sounded oddly hard. "'One of those who found the grail.' Jane jumped. The thought of the grail was never fully out of her mind, but she had not linked it with this strange ceremony here. The woman, however, did not mention it again. "'Watch for the green witch,' she said conversationally. It was like a greeting. The sky was almost black now, with only a faint rim of the glow of daylight. The lights of the two bonfires burned brightly on the headlands. Jane said hastily, clutching at this companionship against the lonely dark, "'What are they doing with those branches?' "'Hazel for the framework,' the woman said. "'Rowan for the head. Then the body is of hawthorn boughs and hawthorn blossoms.' with the stones within for the sinking, and those who are crossed or barren or who would make any wish must touch the green witch, then before she be put to cliff. Oh, Jane said. Watch for the green witch, said the woman pleasantly again, and moved away. Over her shoulder she said, You may make a wish too if you like, I will call you at the right time. Jane was left wondering and nervous. The women were busier now, working steadily, singing in a strange kind of wordless humming, 
the cylinder shape grew more distinct, closer woven, and they carried the stones and put them inside. The head began to take shape, a huge head, long, squarish, without features. When the framework was done, they began weaving... <sighs> they began weaving into it green branches starred with white blossoms. Jane could smell the heavy sweetness of the hawthorn. Somehow it reminded her of the sea. And that's the end of chapter three, part one.